I don't know if you've ever seen uh, VHS cassette uh, prices. This was news to me. But doing research for the movie we're talking about, which is The Wrath of Khan, I scrolled down to the home media section on Wikipedia and I saw this quote. The studio sold the VHS for $39.95, $40 below contemporary movie cassette prices. And I, I looked at that. I said, wait, it was $80 USD in... 1980? No, 1982. This movie came out. Uh, so then Matt did some quick math, and to buy, if you were to buy one today in Canadian dollars, how much? How much was it? It was two hundred sixty-nine dollars Canadian in the present. Two hundred sixty-nine dollars to own a one twenty p copy of a movie that will degrade over time as it loses its magnetism that your that your panasonic vcr will just blow out for no reason one day and you'll just have it steaming in a pile of tape on your living room floor and that's where all your money went it's crazy now think to yourselves if you're listening what movie would you pay 270 dollars to watch again you know what I said? I said there was no movie I would pay that much for. I might pay $270 to watch, you know, one of the classics, you know, like a Raimi Spider-Man or mm-hmm. any of the Raimi Spider-Man films. And one more thing before we start this show. It's going to be, I think it's going to be an okay show. It's going to be jam-packed. Uh, who died? <laughs> Okay, so we, okay, so remember when we reviewed Reanimator and then the director died? Mm -hmm. I think his name was Stuart Moore. Mm -hmm. And then remember when we reviewed Haosu and then the Haosu guy died, the director? Mm -hmm. Well, today we're reviewing Wrath of Khan. Now, some will call this a stretch. Some will see this as desperation for some sort of notoriety but i see this as an omen irfan khan left us this week famed indian actor he was in probably the two big things people know from he was the adult in life of pi i didn't even i've seen life of pi so long ago i don't remember who he was he's you probably know him I think he was like the story, like the main, the storyteller or whatever. He was, yes, he was actually Pai Patel as an adult telling the story. Also, he was a generic villain in the 2012 masterpiece, The Amazing Spider-Man, which Roger Ebert gave 3.5 out of 4 stars. Right. Uh, So, you know what? Um, It's kind of weird, you know? Um, the other thing that's weird is that he was also known by only one name sometimes. So, you know what, next week, what do we review next week, Lucas? Uh, I, f- I forget. I think I said Barbarella. Well, is Jane Fonda still alive? She's still alive, right? I don't know. All right, let me see. Hey, Jane Fonda, watch out. <laughs> watch out, because she's 82. Oof. Let's uh, have a five second moment of silence for Khan. Okay. Alright. Is it done? Rest in peace.
Okay. Uh, he did. Uh, so he, he did some good stuff. So, so. He's a good actor. If you're wondering, he was. If you're curious, he didn't die of anything contemporary. It was it was colon cancer. So mm. you know. Uh, beware. It always sucks. It's always like a, a low blow when you go to the Wikipedia and you see that was. Yeah, when you see that was, it's. Uh... But then it makes you think. You know, as long as we remember them, they're not really dead. Am I that's right? true. Am I right, Lucas? You're right. And I think that's a nice segue. Yep. Let's get into it here. So we're doing... So, yeah, go ahead. So Lucas has once again tricked me into watching hours of Star Trek. <laughs> this time, not only did he make me watch a full-length feature film, he made me watch an hour-long episode from the first season of Star Trek. Episode 22... 23 if you include the cage the pilot as the first episode it's called mm -hmm. space seed let's talk about space seed for a minute before we get into rathacon sure do you want me to give a rundown of the plot give a rundown actually yes because you know what it it's you can watch wrath of Khan without watching space seed because they'll give you a quick rundown in the movie i think you should watch i think you should watch space seed i think ideally if there's ever screenings of Rathacon, they would play Space Seed beforehand. Yeah, that would be cool. Okay, give us a quick rundown here. What's going on? So basically, Space Seed is a first and only episode, which, and that might be surprising for people who think that Khan is this big, iconic figure in Star Trek, which he was because of just one episode in a movie, but he only appears in this one episode called Space Seed. So... While the Enterprise crew is traveling through space, they find a ship floating in space, the SS Bodney Bay, and it's it's so old they don't recognize it. Like, they're wondering, what what sort of make and model is this ship? So, eventually they board it. Um, I think it's Kirk, Scotty, McCoy, and this lady named McIvers. Um, she is like a historian um, so she she's interested in seeing this this ancient ship. So they board it and they find the crew of the SS Bonnie Bay. And the only man who, or the only person who wakes up is this guy named Khan Noonien Singh. And he has a crew of eighty others, but it was his crew went back, went down to I think like seventy two or sixty two. So him and the crew come on board. Khan is conscious so he's in sick bay he's reading the ships um the ships like manuscripts he's reading about uh the ships and all of its components yada 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 and eventually he gets you know better health he goes down and starts uh flirting well not really flirting but he this the macgyver's character starts to fall in love with him and he starts to slowly plan to take over the ship which he inevitably inevitably does kirk then beats him in a fight and says okay well we're not going to send you to jail what we are going to do is we're going to send you down to this deserted planet or not deserted this planet with no other intelligent life called city alpha 5 and macgyver decides to go with them and i should say that khan they find was a product of genetic enhancement during the 90s because uh, they had this big eugenics war 
Um, and as we all was... as as we all know in the nineties, <laughs> the big eugenics war that took place. We um, all remember this. um and he was the ruler i think it said of like a third of the world but eventually when the war was coming to an end him and his uh followers escaped on the ss botany bay and they went to sleep in space waiting for someone to find them so that's basically the whole story of space seed why did um why did khan name his ship botany bay it's like he was asking to get uh, captured. Why would he do that? Well, I don't. I don't get the significance. Because okay, so they say in the show. Because okay, remember the Bonnie Bay is um, is a is a bay in in Australia. Australia. And basically, yeah. remember back in the day, Australia used to be basically like this penal colony. It was basically just like a prison where they used to dump prisoners. Oh, okay. So why is Khan? naming his escape ship Bonnie Bay. It's like if I name my uh my my caravan of fugitives like the SS Hitler or something. Like I don't know. It doesn't really make sense. He's kinda stupid. But uh um, yeah. let's talk about the ep- <laughs> let's talk about the episode. It's actually a pretty good episode. Um if you're um uh, if you've seen the original series, it's it's a pretty typical original series episode, I suppose. You've seen more than me. Yeah. But uh there's it, it I would I would argue that a lot of the stuff in this episode is very quintessential Star Trek. They got the they got kind of the campy fight scene. You got some these philosophical ponderings. You have a lot of people talking in these corridors and mm-hmm. making you got Kirk making a couple of little quips. And of course Kirk is kind of a dick. As we all know, he cannot be a cool guy. Mm-hmm. Which we will see in also in Wrath of Khan. The episode is pretty cool. Um, basically, you get some background for Khan. Um, I don't know. What did you think of it? Um, I think it's like an above average episode of Star Trek. I think this movie is uh, that the episode is lifted to new heights when you pair it with the movie. Yes. On its own, it's kind of you know so so. I really like at the end and the end ties in really well to the the movie they drop them off on city alpha 5 and then spock says it would be interesting to go back in a hundred years and see and to see what comes of this uh seed that you've planted in space yeah and i actually love that so and you know that's the cloud i th- i was reading somewhere star you know star trek is a show with many ideas right mm-hmm so, you know, and it's a television show, naturally. So while it's serialized, you, you kind of have to have an idea and then move on. So you have yeah. this idea that you drop this super race and their super leader conquer man on this planet. And they're going to, you know, take over and they're going to make it a great race of people and so on and so forth. And you f- later find out in Wrath of Khan that's not the case, which I actually thought was a nice twist. But the episode overall is pretty good. I liked it quite a bit. Definitely more, I would say. I would say from the episode of Star Trek that I've seen, it would probably rank near the top. Um, I don't know. Khan basically... Khan has a different demeanor in this than he does in the sequel. And that's, of course, due to... I mean, what happens in the 15 years between this episode and Star mm-hmm. Trek to The Wrath of Khan. He also turns into a white man. 
Uh, I'm not really sure how he <laughs> managed to pull that off. He's so dark in Space Seed, and he's so light in Wrath of Khan. He, Luke, yeah. Luke says lighting things. I don't know, man. I don't know. There's... Lighting and makeup, like, because in Space Seed, they say that he was Indian, and there's a scene where McIvers is painting, um, painting him, and he's like wearing a turban. Yeah, uh, because McIvers is like obsessed with powerful men of the past, like Leif Erikson and uh, who's the other one they always mentioned? Alexander. Yeah. The great. Yeah. Let's talk about McIvers for a second. Um, so they introduce her in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe maybe the worst member of Starfleet ever. <laughs> I I cannot yeah. I cannot recall a single greater instance of an incompetence <laughs> in the history of Starfleet than from this officer whose job as a historian she gets her one chance okay and it's funny and I like the scene where she's going into her room to put on her apron. Uh, mm-hmm. to go continue painting her whatever. And you're thinking, how the hell is this lady on the payroll? And then she gets called to the deck, and she ha- and, she- and she's not even excited, even though he presumably... Uh, and earlier, Kirk has said, like, let's give her a chance to do something. <laughs> <laughs> it really disparages this character. And then she she's not even happy to get called up. She goes on the ship, and then as soon as she sees Khan, she's like falls in love with him. Like, he's the most handsome man in the whole world. Yeah. Um, and and then eventually, she she just falls in love with him, and Khan's like, "Hey, uh, help me take over the ship." And she says, "Okay." <laughs> and then it she does serve an important point because she helps Khan take over the ship. However, she does save Captain Kirk when Khan is on the verge of killing him, mm-hmm. and and she is put onto this. In this little court too, this little kangaroo court that uh, King Kirk. You know what? This is and this is so emblematic of Captain Kirk and his delusions. That probably wasn't even like Starfleet protocol for him to just be the judge, jury, and executioner. It it actually is. They do that like later on in the Next Generation too, and that's one thing that like I don't understand. <laughs> like this regression of trials. The no jury, just two. Yeah, like. And he was literally the victim. This would be like if um, somebody <laughs> who was abused was the judge for the case. And then his solution is terrible. It's like, like it's not even, it's, it's like, oh, I mean, the episode plays it off like, well, it's okay because, you know, they'll thrive. They're, they're Superman. As we see in Wrath of Khan, it doesn't happen. But imagine if you were on a ship and they said, well, how about instead of taking you to prison, we'll just drop you in this desert here? Uh, even mm-hmm. if they said, okay, they're not even the right... Mo- they're in no position to accept that, so that's hilarious. <laughs> anyway, she's given the choice, either core marshal or to go with them. She goes with Khan to be his wife. And uh, and then they're sent off. And, of course, the end of the episode, Kirk ponders what kind of seed... Uh, has been planted and what it will bear in a hundred years or so. That's a nice little way to end the episode where everybody quote-unquote wins. And then we get the stark reality of Wrath of Khan. Now, do you want to give bags for Space Seed? Sure, I'll give it 6 out of 10. It's it's just an above-average episode uh, for me. For me, uh, I'm going to use my 5-bag scale. I'll give it I'll give it like 4 bags 
it was highly entertaining. Actually, I'm gonna down. I'm gonna downgrade that to three bags. Be- okay. Because of MacGyver's, and also okay. because of MacGyver's, and also because Kirk gives the technical manuals to this guy that he knows is really smart, and he and he thinks that'll go well. So that's three bags of popcorn. All right. So fast forward to Wrath of Khan, nineteen eighty-two. Right. I I just want to give a quick just a quick summary of like how the movie came to be because I think it's interesting. Yes. Okay. Um so after the motion picture wasn't a critical or financial success, uh the studio was pretty pissed off at Gene Roddenberry. And he said, "Okay, I got an idea. We'll make a second movie. Here's my idea. The Klingons will use I forget what it's called, the Fountain of Forever, the Gate of Forever, and they're going to go back in time and prevent the assassination <laughs> of JFK. And the studio heads looked at him and said, get the fuck out. <laughs> and you know what? It's it's funny that, and now that I think about it, that was like, that was kind of a fresh in the public consciousness. That was only yeah. like 15 years prior. That happened during... Like, or no, that happened a couple years before Star Trek debuted. Like, that probably wouldn't really go over well. <laughs> so, although that would have been cool to see, um, what's that, what's, what's that book, that Stephen King book? Eleven twenty two sixty three. I guess Stephen King actually just ripped off Roddenberry there. Maybe. But, um, we didn't get that movie because, although it would have been cool to see, um, Star Trek once again for some reason, focused so heavily on 60s America. Yeah. Not really sure why, given the centuries since that relatively insignificant period in human history. <laughs> I simply do not understand. Um, so, basically, they, they brought in a new producer, some guy named Bennett, um, and they called him in and they said, can you make, or what did you think of the motion picture? And he said, well, it was really boring. And they said, could you make another Star Trek movie for less than 45 fucking million dollars? That was a quote. And he's, <laughs> he, he said uh, something like, back where I come from, I can make five movies for that. Um, so then he, he brought on Meyer, who would direct it and I think also help write it um but the writing was this whole shebang and it went through so many people and if someone asked me like do you think a movie would be good if oh i I should also mention the producer and i think the director also have never never saw an episode of star trek before always a good sign yeah so if you ask me like oh the people don't care about the source material prior and the writer the the screenplay went through so many writers and the studio wanted to make cuts do you think this will be a good movie i would i would say no but this movie turned out real well um i guess i'll just go over the entire plot real fast yeah um so this movie kind of retcons the motion picture we can get into that but it starts off with this training sequence called the kobayashi maru in which it's a no-win situation and it's a judgment of character that all uh, 
to-be captains have to do, and we are introduced to this half-Romulan, half-Vulcan lady named Sabic, who is training to be a captain, and her training, uh, the people helping her in this exercise are the original cast, we have Sulu, uh, McCoy, Spock, Ahura, and then eventually after the simulation is done, Kirk comes in, it's Kirk's birthday, he is visibly old, and he is visibly tired as well, um, and eventually... Oh, I should also say, we also see there's another uh, starship in this one called the Starship Reliant. And there we see Chekhov, and he's under the command of a new captain. And they're looking for a planet to test this new uh, device called the Genesis device, which brings life out of nothingness. It's just basically a bomb that rearranges the molecular matrix of the planet to bring life to it. They're looking for a planet devoid of all life, and they come upon this planet, which they think is City Alpha 6. So they go down to what they believe is City Alpha 6, but it's actually City Alpha 5, and they find Khan and his subordinates who use a mind-controlling bug to put them under his spell, and then he takes over the Reliant, trying to find the Genesis device and to kill his nemesis, Kirk. That's basically, that's basically it there. Yeah. I guess if I'm going to go into, should we wait for the whole story? Do you want to just do it now? You know, let's, I want to, because, you know, I actually want to touch on the first scene because I think the first scene is very good. So let's, okay. let's put a let's put a pause on it there. Sure. I I love the scene, and you've seen this scene a million times before, which is the movie jumps right into the action and shit goes down, but it's a simulation. But this does it really well. Number one, because you have no reason to believe that other than the absence of Kirk that this isn't really happening, because there's no established. I believe this is the first appearance and mention of Kobayashi Maru in the series. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, the the idea is, and I and I love this concept not just because of that great scene that we get later on in Star Trek 09 with Kirk eating an apple, <laughs> but also because it 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 ties thematically in with death and uh, no win situations that we see later on in the film. The scene is great. We get introduced to Savic. Uh, she's this Vulcan lady. I think she's full Vulcan. I don't really know. But, She's Romulan and Vulcan. Oh, really? Is that said in the yeah. movie? It's not, but I believe it was said in the script. Okay, well, I don't, I don't look at, uh, I don't look at wikis. So, she, okay. she's a potential, potential. She's a Vulcan, okay, and um, she does the Kobayashi, Kobayashi Maru. You see Sulu die. You see everybody die. Also, small note: I love how in Star Trek, there's always just the computers explode right in their face. Mm-hmm. Whatever the bridge is being is under attack, uh, I I just lo- I don't know I just love that effect when the when they're on the computer and it just blows up. Do you think there's like bombs in them to yeah detonate whenever uh, whenever they're under attack? Yeah, but so you get, don't lose any information. So and then once the simulation ends, you have this great shot of Shatner, and I know I make fun of Shatner for aggrandizing himself as Kirk and he's a, apparently he's a big baby and he's you know wants to be star of the show but he really mm-hmm. does have presence when he comes out and you just see him as a silhouette among the fog and these bright lights 
Um, it's really a great entrance to the film. And really, Kirk is really the driving force from this film. This is one of the more character-driven Star Trek pieces of media I've seen in probably ever, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a great odyssey for Kirk. And it's a great coda to the original series. I think we both agree that could almost be the movie that take. This could basically be the first Star Trek movie. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. Um, and then the movie goes straight into it. Yeah, Kirk is uh, at his birthday. I love that scene where... I love the scene with the gym and, and Bones in uh, Kirk's quarters. Not just because Bones gives him this rom- this blue Romulan ale. It looks like Kool-Aid. Uh, which Kirk grimaces when he drinks, but then he keeps drinking it. Uh, but then you finally get like... You kind of get the meditation on the age that you wanted in the first movie right yeah because the movie you watch star trek the motion picture and the characters are visibly aged and you see that kirk has been you know uh promoted to admiral but you don't really see the effect of like how being old is on him and that's really what this movie's all about which i loved a lot i always like those kind of meditations on the the superstar washed up or grown old so to speak Mm mm-hmm um so that was great too you get this great scene uh with bones and and kirk by a little fire in his in his keep um and i love that um and then the movie jumps right in and then yeah and then we see we get introduced to a couple more characters at the genesis program carol marcus who correct me if i'm wrong it doesn't appear in anything else or anything You're prior. right, but could I could I talk about something that happened earlier? No, yeah, go ahead. So, um, also, one thing that I really really liked is that in this scene, um, McCoy that you're talking about, where McCoy and Kirk are in his his quarters, McCoy gives him a pair of glasses. Um, yes. Which is a very great and easy piece of symbolism of growing old. Mm-hmm. Um, he gives him those because uh, Kirk is allergic to this medicine called Retinex, uh, three or four, whatever, um, which would, I believe just help him see better. But because he's allergic to it, he has to wear these glasses on his, on his face, uh, which doesn't help the whole, uh, whole age thing. And Spock also gives him a, a book. I forget which book it was. You would probably know better than I would. It was A Tale of Two Cities by right. Charles Dickens. Uh, and I, I, love, I love those two gifts that he received. It, it really set the tone right away. Yeah, this is a pretty, you know, this what I'll say, this is a, a surprisingly introspective Star Trek film. Not, not because it's surprising in the sense that Star Trek is not introspective, because it is. The television show is very introspective. But I felt that the motion picture was like a bit overly reliant on the spectacle, which obviously didn't really dazzle us that much uh, in the year of our Lord 2020. And it had Mm -hmm. some good ideas, but I mean, you had this kind of central idea that's kind of rehashed for most of the film. So it was kind of cool to see like right off the bat, you're getting a really tightly written script here where everything feels significant uh, and everything, as you will come to see when you watch the film, does sort of play into itself later. 
Yeah, so um, go ahead with the Carol Marcus thing that you were saying. So Carol Marcus doesn't appear um, in anything prior. I, w- I had to look right. this up because I didn't know if she was a con character that I hadn't seen before. Um, all you know is that she's an old fling of Kirk's and she has a son. Uh, and he's got a nice curly head of hair. Uh, he's actually Kirk's son. Mm-hmm. Now... If there's one thing I don't like about this movie, it might be this plot line. Okay. It could. I think it could have waited. Um, it could have waited to another movie. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. At first, I was like, "This is kind of pointless." Um. But I feel like this movie was heavily inspired by The Empire Strikes Back. And I say that because, and maybe just Star Wars as a whole, because what the producer really felt was missing from the motion picture was a strong villain, mm-hmm. which you could say that would be from Darth Vader. And this movie also shows off the Genesis device, which is a planet destroying device like the death star would be and the the you know sun tie-in also reminded me of the empire strikes back and it it just it also helps to make kirk maybe feel young again because now he's brought into fatherhood which is his new experience so i i didn't mind it that much no and i do like the idea that like uh, of course, with the idea that Kirk is aging, that Kirk has to respect, uh, assume responsibility as a father. I just thought it was strange because it it really, I think, is a little bit underdeveloped. Um, basically, the conceit here is that the son does not know he is Kirk's son, um, mm-hmm. but he has a distaste for any sort of military figure and the military in mm-hmm. general as a scientist. Um, and in particular, he is not very fond of Captain Kirk. So their plot line throughout that film essentially is them reconciling and Kirk sort of winning his admiration. And, you know, you can see that as not just Kirk winning the admiration of just a son, but, you know, just in general of everybody to show that he's not just a, a blowhard or anything like that. But mm-hmm. it, and, and I did like I, like, I like the conclusion to it. It's not overly sentimental. They have a little hug. But, I mean, really, they're people that are just starting their relationship. So I think it's done well in that regard. If I have to say there's a weak point in the film, that's that for me. Um, But this is a very strong film. Um, And as I mentioned, the screenplay, which I'll I'll talk about later because I want to talk about it in its totality once we've covered everything. But the screenplay in this is exceptionally tight. Everything, there's no, like, filler dialogue. There's no, like... Everything works perfectly, I think. It's like a pieces of a puzzle that all come together for this movie. Okay. Where did you want to go from here? Did you want to just, you know, just talk about things we liked or what? You can continue with the plot if you want. Um, so, yeah, Khan takes over the ship um, and he says, I'm going to take or let's go take the Genesis device. So he uses Chekhov, who is now under mind control, to phone uh, FaceTime Carol Marcus. <laughs> and um, he says that Captain Kirk has ordered you to hand over the Genesis device to us. And they go back and forth, and Chekhov says, sorry, it's it's Admiral Kirk's, I should say Admiral, Admiral Kirk's orders. 
so they they start heading there. Carol Marcus calls Kirk, who is now on a training mission with uh, Savick, teaching her how to, or overseeing her, um, command the starship for the first time. In this great scene, I love it so much when he's like almost like a father watching, you know, the son take the car for a spin for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like he's just standing there, very tense, watching her back out of the uh, of the loading bay. And McCoy says, "Like, do you want to? Do you want like a painkiller or something?" And he's like, "No, no." Um, anyways, uh, he gets a call from Carol Marcus saying, "Like, why are you taking Genesis?" But the call for some reason isn't going through properly and he's like i'm not taking genesis what is this blah blah blah. she can't hear what he's saying so they decide to head there and eventually they meet up with khan who and they have a little shootout with their ships both are pretty damaged so they part ways um from there kirk goes to explore uh the space station where genesis is being uh, built and he finds most of the crew is dead however he finds carol marcus and her son and they decide and i should also say check off and the cap i forget the captain's name of the reliant yeah he's black uh, so yeah he's the black so guy. he's a black guy um they're supposed to kill kirk which they don't but kirk and the crew lead lead uh, the brainwash Chekhov and the captain to the Genesis device where Khan then beams it aboard his ship. Kirk goes back to his ship and you know they have whatever it is uh, another shootout in this nebulous in this nebula and uh, I don't know you can you I'm bad at telling the plots honestly you can you can tell the rest. Hello? Hello? You good? Hello? 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 Sorry. Sorry. I, I, I said I'm I, I'm bad at... Uh, your connection is pretty bad today. Um, I'm bad at telling the plots. You can do the rest if you'd like. Yeah, so I mean, from... So you left off where the, they head into the nebula? Yeah. Yeah, so essentially... Um, so Khan has... And yeah, so basically, Khan has offered to. Have you? Sorry, have you mentioned if Khan has met with, uh, has spoke to Kirk yet? No, honestly, I'm really bad at telling the plots. <laughs> so you, you go ahead. It's okay. Basically, um, yeah. So they they make Chekhov and Terrell is his name, kind of a stereotypical name, but we'll overlook it for mm-hmm. the captain. Um, Kirk assumes command of the Enterprise because it's just a training outfit, but according to regulations, which is a nice little touch that they add for the film. Savick is a stickler for regulation, and there's a couple of times where that is very important to the plot, and it leads to some clever moments later on. Um, mm-hmm. He meets with Khan. Uh, he's ambushed by Reliant and Khan. Uh, who, the, to, sorry, he's ambushed by Reliant, which is manned by Khan and his crew. Khan offers to spare Kirk's crew if they relinquish all the material related to Genesis. Um, but they manage to lower their shields, enabling a counterattack. So they retreat. Um, they Kirk McCoy and Savick beam down to the station on regular one to see if they can to see what to fi- what they find, and they find Terrell and Chekhov alive, uh, and find that everybody in the Genesis program and all the members of Doctor Marcus's team have been slaughtered. Um, 
Khan manages to beam the Genesis machine aboard his ship and actually strands him and his crew there, uh, which is meant to be sort of the same punishment that he faced as Kirk stranded him on that planet. I don't know if we mentioned this prior, but the reason that Khan did not thrive, per se, on that planet is not because he is incompetent, but because supposedly there was an explosion of a planet nearby that ruined the ecosystem and actually killed a bunch of his members and Dr. MacGyver. They were only referred to her as the wife of Khan in this movie, but I assume that this is Dr. MacGyver they're talking about. Um... Contrans- yeah, so Khan transported Genesis aboard the Reliant. Kirk and the people stranded on the station check out the uh, Genesis cave, which is a nice little scene where we have Kirk explain how he beat the Kobayashi Maru, uh, mm-hmm. which is to say he cheated. Um, he then boards back, they then beam back aboard the Enterprise uh, and they get ready for the big final battle with Khan, uh, in which Kirk manages to mortally wound Khan. But as with his dying breath and with a nice little quote, an homage to uh, Moby Dick, Khan activates the Genesis machine to that will which will essentially blow up his ship and also any ship nearby. And it's it's a nice sense of scale we get in that moment when um, Sulu says at one point we're four thousand kilometers away, and then Kirk says we are still going to get killed in this explosion. I thought it was a mm-hmm. nice touch. Like, 4,000 kilometers is a long way. That's like one-tenth of... I mean, I, I'm going to look up the circumference of the Earth, all right? It's less, than, it's less than that, I'm pretty sure. No, it is. I 4,000 is more. I think f- the the diameter of the Earth is 12,000 kilometers. So you're a third of the oh, Earth... Oh, I'm wrong. So you're a third of the Earth away and it's still not enough. That was just a nice touch that I'm glad they added to the, uh, to the script there. Um... But, of course, we get the classic dramatic scene. Um, what happens is that the warp drive is inoperable due to uh, something due to a radiation room. Spock, mm-hmm. uh, and you get a nice great moment. You get a great moment there where Spock has this look of realization on his face, and he heads down to the engine room without a word. Yeah. And he repairs this um, warp drive, uh, mm-hmm. which in turn causing him to slowly die of radiation poisoning as they all celebrate kirk heads down and we have the classic moment which many people have seen but it's always worth watching and it hits especially hard when you watch the entire film mm-hmm. where where spock puts his v on the glass and says i have been and always will be your friend and then he mm-hmm. dies you get the bur you get the burial of spock uh they put him in a coffin that shoot him into space i thought that was callous at first but then you find out that it lands on the planet that has been created from the Genesis explosion that Khan activated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get a nice little send-off for Spock there. They pick up Reliance Maroon crew. Uh, and the final th- and the last thing you hear from Kirk is him saying, I feel young. Yeah. And that was a great ending to the film as well. So Yeah, and then you get a little addition, which is Spock does the classic intro, which I loved. Yes. Yeah, I thought that was yeah. good. I was I was slightly disappointed that they did not go out with the original series theme, although I understand that maybe it's a little too peppy and not quite dramatic mm-hmm. enough. I did mm-hmm. like the orchestral rendition of American Grace that they play after they shoot Spock into space. Uh, shout yes. out to the composer, James Horner. He's pretty famous. He's done 
uh, Titanic. He's done Avatar. He collaborates a lot with James Cameron. But um, he was. This is actually his big break. Star Trek II: The Wrath of God, and this and the score in this is very good. I would say it is very good. All right, let's get into specifics. What did you love so much about this film, Lucas? Oh, okay. One thing that I, I, I love in this movie and I harped on the, in the motion picture when we talked about it are the outfits. I think this movie has such great costumes for all of the characters with I and one you know what I have to go back and I, one thing that I really love about this movie is there's just this very deep rooted naval aesthetic to it. Mm-hmm. It is very and I I forget who said it, but one of the crew, um, one of the people, uh, said that they wanted this movie to be Hornblower in outer space, mm. and that really shows, and I really love it. So when Chekhov first goes down to City Alpha Five and he finds Khan's bunker, he looks at this belt buckle that has SS Bonnie Bay on it. But if you look to the left of that, there's a little bookshelf and it's full of different old timey books. One of them being Moby Dick. And that just kind of sets the stage for the movie. And I love that. Yes. Um, there's so many, just there's so many great just naval references. So for example, like little things like Kirk's son in one scene, he takes off his sweater and then he ties it around his shoulders. Like a, like a yacht boy would do. Mm-hmm. Um, when Khan first meets Kirk, he shoots from the Reliant at the Enterprise when they are parallel to one another, like a ship would do with their cannons out on the side. Mm-hmm. I love all that. And then going back to the costumes, um, they've changed the costumes in this movie. We don't have the red, gold, and blue, or the red, green, and blue, I should say. We just have... All of the Enterprise crewmen, except for the engineers, wear this big, puffy red jacket, like an admiral of, like a U.S. frigate would wear. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Um, and the aesthetic and their procedures are very militarized as well. Like when Kirk first boards the Enterprise, all the crewmen are standing there, salute, like standing attention. Um, Spock like blows a whistle for their attention and they'll stiffen up and stand straight. Kirk comes in. I forget if he says at ease, but basically he says like at ease and he's there to do an inspection. He goes down into the engineer room, swipes one of the pipes for dust. And I just, I, I love that. Um, a lot of people, a lot of purists, Star Trek purists will be like, oh, the, the Starfleet aren't supposed to be militarized. And Gene Roddenberry is one of them, but that's such a cope. <laughs> So, well, such a cult. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's this idea. It's it's always funny, and this is this is a bit of a tangent, but it's always funny how the idea is that Star Trek is supposed to be this perfect future, and there's so that the way there would be no militarization because that's too authoritative uh, and too um, you know, for lack of a better term, fascist for such an mm-hmm. idyllic society. But like we know that's not true. I mean, Bones is just straight up racist to Spock. Even in this film, he calls him an inhuman, cold-blooded. And then he gets cut mm-hmm. off by somebody else. Um, and it, it is kind of unwarranted, to be quite honest. So this idea that the era of Starfleet is supposed to be this perfect world doesn't really gel with me. I like better the I I like when they commit to the more 
militaristic aspect, you know, and and it's more akin to what we have now because I mean Star Trek at the end of the day is most is a lot of times supposed to parallel what's happening currently, right? So I, yeah, like the Klingons were straight up the Russians. Yeah. So I mean, you know, it's it's kind of weird that we're this is a perfect society, but we still all hate Klingons. You know, so that's doesn't really make sense. But you're mm-hmm. right about the costuming; it's great. Um, not only like everybody has a great costume. I especially love these uh, spacesuits that um, Chekhov and Terrell wear when they first yeah. meet Khan. And I, I want to talk about the scene too. They have these boxy suits. Um, the orange one, which Terrell wears, reminded me heavily of 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah, but they're great, um, and you get this great scene. Um, it's probably the closest I've seen Star Trek get to horror, and it's really well done. When Chekhov finds this little belt that says SS Botany Bay, um, and it helps especially if you've seen the space scene because then you know the danger present. Uh, Terrell doesn't, uh, and that kind of works as a ve- he works as a vehicle for viewers who have not seen Space Seed. But as mm-hmm. soon as they leave the bunker, you just see. In this sort of Martian dust storm haze, you see like 20 cloaked figures just standing there. And it's probably the scariest thing I've seen in Star Trek ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, they get interrogate, interrogated with the with the weird alien worm. And that's a great scene of dread because they don't just push, shove it in their ear. They just put it, on their hel- put it in their helmet, put the helmet on, and then watch it crawl into their ear. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, Chekhov screaming was great. Almost reminded me of Alien. I don't know why, even though you don't really get, even though it's not really alien esque. But I guess space or science fiction horror is always going to evoke Alien to a degree. And this is right. also a great introduction for Ricardo Montalban as Khan. And I have to say, as a villain, I like him a lot. And the yeah. thing that makes him great to me is not that he's like fully three dimensional. Or that he puts on an amazing acting clinic. He does a very good job. But he almost has like a sort of melodramatic posturing style. As if Khan, you know, sort of knows that he's a figure to be feared and respected. But but the singular idea that they pose in this movie. That Khan, while supposedly superior. And they have one of his henchmen named Joachim, I think it is. um, Continually allude to this in the film. Is that. Khan, you are a superior being. You do not have to be hung up on this grudge with Captain Kirk. But throughout the film, of course, Khan is driven singularly by his pursuit and his pursuit of vengeance against Captain Kirk, um, against all logic and all reason, which I thought was a nice little way of showing that while Khan is this quote unquote superior being, he's not perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, Khan has done great in this film. I love I love when he alludes to uh, I like when he quotes Moby Dick at the end. It's like the perfect melodramatic ending for his character, uh, and even when he blows up the shit, and when even when he did pulls the suicide bomb sort of move on Kirk, that's very in character for him. Um, I don't know. He's great. He's got a nice like eighties. What is that called? Not a mohawk. He's got like a mullet kind of. Yeah, he's got like a mullet. He looks like a rocker. He looks like he's from ZZ Top or something. And he looks cool mm-hmm. as hell. I, and he has his chest out in the open. Yes, uh, he's got his chest, and later on he's got a nice scar on it. Um, I don't know. He's a great character. I like. I I would say he's the most famous Star Trek villain. And I think that's for a reason. 
I've only seen the new movies, the, these two movies that we've reviewed here, and some of the original series, but he's by far the most memorable villain. Mm-hmm. And he plays and he plays nicely as sort of a parallel to Kirk. You get a lot of um, sort of allusions to that when they cut back to him on the bridge and Kirk on the bridge, Khan surrounded by superhuman crew and Kirk surrounded by those on Starfleet. They even have, even though this is probably coincidental, totally. They even four letter. They even have four letter names that start with K. I don't yeah. know. There was just a nice dynamic there between Khan um, and Kirk, and it was especially Khan was especially the perfect villain to have in a film all about reinvigorating the aging Captain Kirk. You have mm-hmm. this foe from the past a formidable foe who you overcome overcame with great effort who's coming back due to what could be interpreted as one of kirk's failures um and it's only and it's up to kirk basically to stop the destruction of life as we know it um yeah and it's and it's a great it's a great character arc frankly for him not for not for just khan but for kirk as well one little thing that I found uh, thought was funny. Um, I don't know if he noticed this, but Chekhov isn't in the episode Space Seed. I did notice this. It was funny because <laughs> Khan in the interrogation scene says, I don't know you to Captain Terrell, but he says, but I never forget a safe face to Chekhov. And I went, wait a second. Um, he was not, Walter Koenig was not in that episode at all. He, he only came on until season two. Yeah. So that was, that was a little goof. But you know what? It's okay. We, we're we're going to let it happen. I mean, I understand why. Because alternatively, the only people he encounters from the original crew are, you know, the, the big three, Spock, Kirk, and McCoy. And then I guess Uhura. Mm-hmm. But you, you can't have those people be mind-controlled uh, and served as pawns, I guess, because they're too veteran. Chekhov was a nice little can fodder character that you could have to be drift around. And he's pretty young, too. Yeah. I, I did like how you uh, like you, how you said that Khan is a perfect villain for Kirk because I I wrote that down while taking notes for this for this movie because a- another reason why he's such a good villain is because Kirk and all of Star Trek has always really been mind over matter, mm-hmm. whereas Khan is just pure brute force. Yes. In this interrogation scene between Khan and. Uh, check off he grabs him by this handle on his spacesuit and just lifts him up one hand into the air yes uh and and he, yeah I, I love that perfectly placed handle that he has yeah. to grab check off up in the air and then he holds him up yeah and he's he is frankly menacing even though he he's, he's not like a quote-unquote scary villain but i would say that he is he's menacing for sure He's a, he's a force to be reckoned with. We get a new character. It almost seems obligatory that in any Star Trek episode or film, you got to have that new character that comes in. Mm-hmm. And in this one, we get Savick. She's the Vulcan, played by Kirstie Alley in her first role ever. What do you think of the character? Uh, she, she doesn't do a whole lot later on in the movie. Mm-hmm. But early on, she has some good parts, like when Kirk first comes on board, and uh, and he talks with I, I I think it was on the ship, or maybe it was after the Kobayashi Maru. Uh, he he talks to her, whatever, and then he leaves, and then Savick and Spock talk in uh, in Klingon, 
or not a Klingon in whatever Vulcanese or Vulcan, who knows? Um, they talk, and she's like, "He was not what I was expecting. Like he's so human, or something like that." Uh, and then Spock says, "Like yeah, you'll come to come to learn that." Blah blah. No, blah. the best for the the thing that's hilarious is that she said he's so human, and then Spock says, "Well, nobody's perfect." I thought yeah. that was so hilarious. That's a cl- <laughs> that's a classic Spock moment. It was from Mr. Um, Spock. And her whole thing in this movie is that she is really troubled as a as a as a Vulcan that she did poor or she perceives that she did poorly on the test mm-hmm. that she wasn't able to resolve the situation and she's asking she she goes into this elevator with Kirk and she says may I ask a question and he says you may or you may ask. And then he laughs, and she just stares at him. And he was like, uh, that was a joke. And she was like, ah, anyways. <laughs> and then she she was like, um, she, was, uh, she just asked him, how did he do on the Kobayashi Maru test? And uh, he kind of deflects it or whatever. And it was also funny when she got on, he was like, did you uh, change your hair? And she was like, it's still regulation. Yeah, and, and her whole spiel, the whole whole spiel, and a big well, a big part of her spiel is that she's a stickler for regulation. There's a great moment later on, um, when she ad- ad- attempts to cite regulation to Admiral Kirk, uh, and Spock sort of reprimands her like he's well aware of regulation. She's kind of like mm-hmm. she's kind of like that nerd kid who comes up and says, um, "Well, actually, you have to do this." And you get a nice moment. And she serves a fine supporting role in the film. She didn't have like a particular arc, so to speak. She does have a nice sort of father-daughter relationship with Mr. Spock. Um, I wonder if I wonder if any early part of the script she was meant to be Spock's daughter. I get, uh, probably not. No. Probably not because I guess Spock had, does has never had a love interest, right? I don't know. Uh, he's had love interest in the show, yeah. Okay, well. Yeah, so, I don't know. She was alright. She was pretty decent uh, as, a, as a new character. Um, she did plays a Vulcan very well. She, uh, she does not emote a lot in this film at all. I don't know if you noticed, but at Spock's uh, funeral at the end, she is crying. I did notice that. That was, of course, a nice touch. You gotta have... Mm-hmm. You gotta have... You know, it makes you wonder with the Vulcan and their need to suppress emotion and their illogical stuff. Like maybe you guys should just give it up. I don't know. Maybe you'd be happy. Yeah. Maybe you'd be happier that way. That's what I think. Maybe it's too much repression going on. But anyway. Yeah. Um. I. I didn't mind. I didn't mind her character. I mean, she. She was fine, and I wasn't offended by it. I was a little upset that we didn't get. I don't know what I'm really wanting from the original cast, but we didn't get a whole lot from Sulu, Ahura. I I want something more, and I, I didn't get it with this movie. Um, of course, they handled Kirk really well. I think Spock, he really doesn't have a lot to do in this movie, but all the scenes that he's in are really good, and one scene in particular that I love is Kirk goes to his chambers, and he's sort of just meditating there. And I love in any movie, especially why I love Star Wars, is they'll have these cool things that they just use 
as like throwaway like throwaway ideas like there's everyday ideas in that universe and they're just presented to us without explanation mm-hmm. so kirk just walks into his room and then spock is doing this like little meditation and we have no idea what it is or what its purpose is and i i just love anything like that in the movie it, it's just like yeah this is this is what real life is to them we don't have to explain real life to you i love that and then this is before um they get the call about the genesis device being stolen kirk takes on the role as captain and spock tells him being a starship captain is your first best destiny and like i I I have been and always shall be your friend and it sets it sets it all up very nicely and especially sets up the ending really nicely. I love that scene. Um I one thing I'll say though is I did I really wanted either a face to face confrontation between Connor Kirk and Kirk. Uh-huh. Or I wanted there's a, a couple of things that I would have liked and that would have been more scenes of Khan and his crew aboard the Reliant and maybe them just talking mm-hmm. about future plans or something. Um, I, I felt like there was just a little, there was just not enough Khan from, from my liking. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing that I really would have liked is Khan does have that Moby Dick um that Moby Dick quote before he dies, but it, it's a few minutes before he dies. And I love in it's so satisfying in movies where the villain realizes that he's going to lose. And we don't get that realization. Like Khan dies knowing that, or thinking that he killed Kirk in the explosion. Mm-hmm. And there's no scene where he's like, ah, oh, they're too far away. I suppose. I mean, Obviously, as a villain, he's not going to get a happy ending. I, I suppose this is the happiest ending Khan will get, dying thinking that he's defeated Kurt. I kind of like that mm-hmm. as an ending for him because that's the whole thing. He, he He's so obsessed with his vengeance for Kirk. Um, I like the idea of, I don't know, just the suicide. and the, the We don't really see it, but the idea of satisfaction he'll get from this. And at the end, of course, Kirk is able to escape this explosion. Um, but I don't know, it was a nice quota to, to Khan. It was almost like the only way he would rest well, in my mind. Otherwise, he'd be turning in his space grave for his whole life. His whole afterlife. One other... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, one other thing that I really liked is this movie has a very dark tone to it. Obviously, through the story where Spock dies. And we haven't mentioned it, but when Khan atta- first like shoots down... Um, the Enterprise, the engine room, uh, suffers severe damage. And in that, in the, the engine room crew is Scotty's nephew, who we see at the beginning of the movie is this gung-ho, um, engineer. And then Kirk goes down to sickbay and sees that he's all bloodied and scarred. And he reaches up at Kirk and he's like, can I rest now, sir? Or something like that. And, you know, Kirk says, you may, and then he dies. Um, there's lots of, like, the, the, the later on in the movie when Kirk has shot 
the reliance so many times that it's blown up you would see Khan and he's all bloodied but also in the sound effects of this movie when ships kind of pass by the screen it's just this very deep like noise like it's like mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in the original series, like ships would be like whipping around, like zippity doo dah noises. It was really optimistic, and in this, it's very slow and melodic, and I really like that. And even the lighting of the sets, like when Kirk, um, Bones, and Spock learn of the Genesis device, they're in this room, and it's it's so barely lit. I can I can't even see Bones when he enters the room. Mm-hmm. Everything in, in this movie is so dark. And when they go to um, reg, reg, was a regular one? Yes, regular one. Regular one. And they find the crew dead. They're like completely bloodied and hanging from the ceiling. Yes, that was, that was another scene that kind of made me think of Alien for some reason. And one thing that's always creeped me out, I can't explain it, is when they go to regular one, Ahura is trying to contact... The, the scientists there and the the station is completely silent and all we see is Ahura like talking at this screen staring at nothing I don't know why but that's always freaked me out it is there is I, I guess there's some subtle horror influence in this you, and and I and I agree totally with what you said uh, in terms of effects I think we should give some commendation to the effects here because, I mean, motion pictures, I suppose, was lauded for its effects at the time. The effects in this are even better. The warping, mm-hmm. like, act... And when I say mean it looks better, I mean the effects actually look good now. Yeah. Like, the warping w- was quality. It looks like basically what it does in the reboot Star Trek film. Those I, I was actually stunned the first time you see Terrell and Chekhov warp down to the planet. It looks so good. You, then, yeah. then they hit into the nebula and you... It looks beautiful. All the computer matrix stuff and everything looks good. It's important to note that this is actually the first movie, and it's apt that this is a Star Trek film that achieved this. It was the first movie with an entirely computer-generated sequence, and that's in the proposal that Dr. Carol Marcus creates for Genesis. She shows a 3D rendering of what would happen if you dropped the Genesis machine on a barren planet. Um, and you just get this fully computer-generated sequence, and it looks very, and it, and it looks pretty nice relative to now, I would say. Um, so that mm-hmm. was a cool little note to have in the film. But now the effects in this are quite good, better than motion picture. Um, and in fact, the more I l- think about and the Rathacon, the more the motion picture gets worse in comparison, because yeah. as we mentioned in the beginning of the film, as a sort of sequel to the original series this works better than having the motion sequel come first because this actually plays into the idea of the aging um it i mean obviously it's a better film um the effects are a lot better it it feels like what star trek would look like having 15 years pass since the television series and given in a bigger budget and of course this Mm -hmm. this film did have a i think considerably bigger budget than the motion picture correct no, wrong. No, had it had a smaller budget? Yeah, uh, the motion. Yeah, which may surprise you. The motion picture had a budget of forty-five million. The Wrath of Khan was fifteen million. That's crazy. Uh, the motion picture they were throwing money in the fire, or they paid it all to Shatner. I don't know what they were doing. <laughs> Even the makeup in this is better. You get there's 
You get Khan with his scarred face as well as that engineer you mentioned earlier. That actually looks good. Uh, all the scarring and all the injury looks pretty good. When the bridge blows up, it looks pretty convincing. Mm-hmm. That's it's very interesting to me. And then motion picture came out what year? Seventy eight. Yep, and this came out in eighty two. This is only four years different, so there really wasn't that much of an advance in technology at the time. But mm-hmm. oh well, it's a great, it's a it's a great piece of media. And I will say this because I said I was going to mention it earlier the screenplay. I love the script for this, and I always like to pay special care to the screenplay of a film. I always like to think, if I was reading this as a script, how good of the story would this be? And I think mm-hmm. this would still be an excellent film. And I think this screenplay, which was actually... So it was actually outlined by one of the producers of the film, as a, just as a plot outline. And then, of course, Jack B. B. Sowards, who is the screenplay credit for this film, developed it into a full script. The director, Nicholas Meyer, actually completed it in 12 days and he didn't accept the credit so i'm so there's three cooks in the kitchen here i'm not sure who to credit but it's great every piece of line in the motion picture especially there were shots that held too long but it there also felt like there was dialogue and conversations that felt a bit superfluous everything here works and everything here that feels significant or is emphasized in the beginning of the film of course has some sort of payoff towards the end and that's something i didn't really expect I don't think I've seen anything written this tightly in anything Star Trek, even in the newer films, even though as as much as I like, well, the one, actually, um, <laughs> now that I think about it. But this is a very tight story. Um, there isn't anything, pacing-wise, it's very well done. I never felt for a second that this movie dragged. Yeah, I agree. Although I am part, we are both partial to Star Trek, so I'm not sure how some others who are not may fare. But while in the motion picture, you know, you have the shot of the Enterprise that lasts about fifteen twenty minutes too long. Here, you get, you know, in comparison, they get a quick punch up of the Enterprise, and you actually feel the grandeur as they return to the ship, as it lights off, as it boots off. Into space. I'm gonna interrupt you for one second. That was reused footage from the motion picture. What? Yeah. Oh well, you know what? They cut all the crap. Okay. Yeah. And they made it look. And they was there any other reused footage? No, but um, to save money, they reused a lot of the like scraps of the of the motion picture for props in this movie. Oh, okay, that makes sense actually. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? They cut out the extra 15 minutes that you have there of the Enterprise being shot. And I don't know. This is a, it's a tight film. It's just under two hours. It flew by for me. It felt like an hour and a half. Um, and it's a delight the whole way through, I have to say. Honestly, I'm kind of pissed because I didn't want to like this movie because I was pissed at Lucas for making me watch more Star Trek. <laughs> I was so upset. How much Star mm-hmm. Trek can we do? Three and all six movies. We won't. Okay, we won't. But I watched this movie and I said, "By God, this is a great film." I have small qualms here and there, but overall, it is a very compelling picture. Um, and I think if you're a fan of science fiction, you should just watch this. Period. Yeah. What? Um, 
I wanted to ask you this at the beginning, but we, we just got into the discussion, which is fine. But what did you know about this movie before going into it other than you knew who Khan was or something like this that? This was my first time being in the movie. This is all I knew. Okay. I knew that Khan is in the movie. Mm-hmm. And at one point, Kirk says, Khan! Mm-hmm. And then I have seen the scene where Spock died because when Leonard Nimoy died, that's all they would play. R.I.P. Oh, okay. That's it. That's all I knew about the movie. I didn't know anything else. I knew this was lauded as the best Star Trek film. But that was mm-hmm. it. It's a great first viewing experience. You've seen it a hell of a lot more times than I have. Is there anything you picked up on su- subsequent viewings that maybe I, people should watch out for? No. Not, like, just the things that I wanted more from the movie, like more con scenes and more non-big three character scenes or big four character uh, scenes, it, it bothered me. Uh, but other than that, like everything is real, it's it's real good. Uh, what I want to ask you though was that did the Spock scene affect you knowing that that he was going to die? It did, uh, and I and I and I should mention it because I think the Spock scene is done excellently. Um, I love when he stands up because Kirk runs down and he. Um, he bangs on the glass like Spock, Spock, and he. We see him stand up and he adjusts his uniform, which I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, like even in this, even when he's like degrading, he he still has the energy to to stand up and make himself up to standards. And then he goes and he repeats to Kirk what he said when they first had that talk in his chambers that. And now everyone everyone knows this line that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, and that was that was a great uh, great scene. And see, that's an example of the writing that I appreciated from this film. You know, they could have in the it's used earlier in the film, but it's not done in a hokey context that feels, um, you know, that feels contrived. It's it's a Spockism that feels very Spock. And then when he repeats it again towards the end of the film, it has added weight. So that's just another example mm-hmm. I wanted to highlight of why I like the script of this film so much in particular. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but did you notice that before Spock went into the radiation chamber, he used the mind meld with McCoy? I did. And I was, I was actually one thing, I was a question that I was meaning to ask you. He says, remember, I'm not too savvy on the mind meld. What's happening there? Do you want me to explain it? Because it is a bit of a spoiler for the next movie. Uh, you know what? Go ahead. Okay, so for anyone listening, if you don't want a spoiler for the search for Spock, or search for Spock don't listen. But he uses a mind meld. And this is why I think this movie completely retcons and blows the motion picture the fuck out. <laughs> um, because... Um, the Wrath of Khan, The Search for Spock, and The Voyage Home is its own trilogy. Um, so when Spock uses a mind meld on McCoy, he actually puts his soul into McCoy. Oh. And, yeah. And that's why McCoy says at the end of... And, it like, it's just genius writing. At the end, McCoy says, well, he's not really gone if we remember him. 
I see. So I mean, that is like, honestly, and like every time there's a movie, there's usually a really shitty ham fisted, like, oh, there's going to be a sequel. Like, I don't know, Batman v Superman when Batman dies at the end and then like before the credits roll. Superman dies at the end, you casual. Are you stupid or something? Oh, sorry. Superman dies. Superman dies, and, and it's still like the death of Superman. I know, and then like the rocks start floating on his tomb or whatever. It's just like, oh, he's back. There's gonna be another one. Like in this one, you would have no idea that you just think Spock's dead and that's it. But the mind meld and then McCoy's line ties them perfectly for the next movie. Yeah, and you know what? It even works when you see Spock's coffin resting on the planet con as we'll call it um mm-hmm. because i suppose they later and i suppose in search for spock they aim to recover that body um yeah. but not knowing that spock is going to come back it just seems like a nice poetic editing to have his coffin rather than just shot off into space resting in this new dominion this dominion of newfound life so yeah it's cool i don't know this movie's it, it, it's it's big bags for this movie um, I want to say also, just as a quick side note, these are just some fun facts. This movie was going to be titled The Undiscovered Country. I don't really know if... I kind of like Rathacon better than that. And my next fact is that this movie was going to be called The Vengeance of Khan. But out of good faith, they changed it because the newest Lucasfilm movie was going to be titled The Revenge of the Jedi. So they t- changed it to um, the Wrath of Khan, and then it became Return of the Jedi, we- uh, like a week after. After they changed the title. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's something. There's something punchy about Wrath of Khan. I agree. Um, I don't think I had. Let me just check my notes real quick to see if I had anything else um, that I thought was worth mentioning. Yeah. No, I think I got it. Uh... I think I got it all. You hit the nail on the head, bro. I don't know this episode because of the we I I we didn't mention it, but there's gonna be a cut. Um, we had some technical issues, and my my explanation of the plot of this movie sucked, so I didn't feel like I did too hot this episode. But oh well. The bottom line here is, um, for. Hey, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. But the bottom line is, for whichever guy in Wuhan um, ate that bat, I hope you're happy. <laughs> I hope that was a tasty... I hope that was a tasty meal for you. I'm just excited to be back in the studio. This recording at home stuff is... It's bullshit! Yeah, it's bullshit. I'm tired of it. Look, okay? Me too. You know why, guys? It's okay. For those who don't know, we're located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Tomorrow, they're opening up the businesses. So, hey, it's only a matter of time before we're back in the studio. And then we'll probably take a month off after we all get COVID. (laughs) Because it's way too early. But that's okay. Because Cult of Personality is about bringing you the best cult film reviews, regardless of personal safety. Or the safety of our loved ones. And that's a yeah. promise. A promise. 
I feel like ugh, this episode could have been much longer because I feel like we could have just talked for another hour about. I know you can talk. Movie, but... Look, I know you can talk all day about Star Trek, you know, but I'm not even that big of a fan. I just like this movie. Such bullshit. This is like when, this is like when the red letter media guys are like, "Oh, I, uh, I see Star Trek with a critical eye," and then oh, that is honestly the biggest bullshit ever. They are the biggest copers about Star Trek ever. And Mike has the reference. For the record, I do love red letter media, but it's just hilarious to me every time there's that Star Trek reference in half in the bag. Um. And I'm just and and I just I just tune out for ten minutes because I don't know what the fuck I didn't watch episodes of Deep Space Nine. I don't remember what he's alluding to. I don't know. They cope so goddamn hard. It's insane. But uh, you want to go to bags, or do you have anything else you like to add? Oh, quick thing. This is just funny. I love when Khan meets Chekhov and um. He's like, you never told your captain of the story of Khan. And I was thinking, dude, Chekhov saw Abraham Lincoln floating in space and he came onto their ship and called Ahura the N-word, okay? He has bigger stories to tell <laughs> than some dude. Some Indian guy <laughs> who comes in, um, kisses their historian, and then dips out, you know? <laughs> But that you know that's no a, that's another great lie because you know it, it that speaks to Khan's ego. He's he, he actually cannot believe that he has not become a fable, a legend yeah. among the crew. It's but, funny. Oh, okay. Last thing. Last thing. I promise. I forgot to talk about this when we talked about the costumes. I love all of Khan's and his followers' costumes um, because the costume designer wanted them to look as if they were living on a maroon planet. And I think they did a really good job. It looks like they just threw their clothes together from whatever fabric they had laying around, really. Yeah, and based on the budget, that's probably what they did. And Khan has the Starfleet emblem on a necklace around his neck, and I am pretty sure, or I'd like to think, that that's from MacGyver's uniform. Yeah, you know what? I, I like to think that, too. I'd like to one. I'd like to know if they actually asked asked the actors to come back if they ever planned to have her in. My assumption is that they didn't even bother to ask, and they just planned to have her dead. But uh, I don't know. I was kind of a, this. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was half expecting her to be in the movie, um, but then she wasn't, and that's it. I was just gonna say. Um... If you are curious as to how big of a success this was, first of all, as monetarily, it had a budget of $12 million, sorry, and it made a box office of $97 million. I don't know if that includes VHS tape sales of $40 USD in 1982, but um, I think that's something like close to $300 million today. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, and the day after release, it was such a critical... Um, what's the word I'm thinking? Critical smash hit, smash hit. That the day after, um, they were like, okay, let's make a third one. Oh, that's classic. Yeah, you know what? Now they do that before the movies even hit screens. Yeah, uh, and they got the next trilogies planned out. So, uh. 
I didn't. I don't know if I said it. I know you said it, but I also agree that the music in this movie was amazing. Um, yeah. All right. That's it. That's okay. That's. I'm calling it there. No more. I can keep going, but I'm good. All right, Lucas. Let's get to the uh, infamous bag section, as uh, all fans know. Uh, you go first. No. Please. No. Please. No. You go first. Okay, one. I'm I'm gonna say this really quick because I thought it's funny. Matt texted me at uh, or I texted him. I texted Matt. Um, and I said, "How many? Don't how many bags do don't tell the them that. Don't tell them." And he said at twelve thirteen a.m. This movie was so much better than motion picture. It's not even funny. Don't. I didn't like this movie. This movie sucks. I hate Star Trek. And that was so funny to me. Uh, what else did you say that was funny? Nothing. Uh, so they forced Roddenberry out of the production and the movie was good. How did Trekkies cope? That's a good question. And you know what I was thinking? Um, I guess this is... Motion picture was a waste of time. <laughs> I stand by that. Okay. You know what? It's um, it's funny because that kind of mirrors Star Wars because, well, I mean, Star Wars the first one is actually really good, but it was directed by mm-hmm. Lucas, and then the second one wasn't, and people say that's the best one. Are you talking about Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, or ninety seven or seventy seven and The Empire Strikes I'm talking Back? Talking about seventy seven. Why would I be talking about no. the shit ones? Well, I don't know. You said the second one was bad, and no, I said the better. Empire Strikes Back is one of the is one of the best movies ever made. No, I said people say. First of all, I okay. I said people say that the second one's better. It's well regarded. I like the first Star Wars better. That's me. Okay. That's my that's my th- thinking man's opinion. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. It does. It's kind of similar. Sometimes you gotta keep. You gotta. You gotta let your darlings go. If you love it, let it go. And let somebody else come in and do it. Okay. That's the moral of the story here. How many bags are you giving it? Nah, nice try. Do your bags first. <laughs> I'm really torn between eight and nine. Yeah. I'm gonna go with I'm gonna give it nine. You give it nine bags? Yeah. You know what? I I was watching this movie and mm-hmm. you know, I was thinking, you know, how many bags do I give this? Because it's got to be at least four. Right. Do I give it the five bags and give Lucas the satisfaction? The answer is well. the answer is no. It's four bags, <laughs> but it's <laughs> but it's a high four bags. Big. This is four bags doubled layered, and the cashier was your friend. So she put Skittles into it too, sprinkled evenly throughout, and they won't fall to the bottom of the bag like they usually do. They will stay sparse evenly between the kernels, and they also will not get soft due to the heat of the popcorn. They will remain cold and crunchy. All right, so this is another four baker from Matt. (laughs) This is only for the record my fourth, maybe fifth four bagger. It's actually your seventh. No, it's not. List them off. Who Killed Captain Alex, okay. The Princess Bride, Ed Wood, The Atomic Cafe, Night of the Living Dead, House, and this will be your seventh. 
All right. Well, how many episodes do we have? Uh, we have, this will be our 19th, I believe. Look, okay. If we reduce Lucas's scale to the five bags. Which we don't. Be quiet. If we reduce Lucas's scale to the five bags, then you know what? He's also going to have a lot of redundant scores, okay? Because that's the nature of five bags. Okay? All right. This is five bags sure. of popcorn. No, four. I meant four. <laughs> this is four bags, quality bags of popcorn. I'm going to say, watch this movie. I'm going to say this. Don't watch motion picture unless you like Star Trek. <laughs> but if you're okay. not like a p- partial to Star Trek, watch Space Seed and then watch this. Maybe have like a passing familiarity of Star Trek and you're going to enjoy it a lot. And then after that, watch Star Trek 09. I I was watching this and I was thinking, you know how like we'd watch a motion picture and be like, this is an o like this is a good Star Trek movie. Yeah. Or something like that. The Wrath of Khan is a good piece of science fiction. It's just a good movie. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So there's no, you know, no distinction necessary. Uh, I suppose before we go, we should do a mini review of Star Trek Into Darkness. Okay, are you ready? Yeah. Uh, it sucks. All right, here's what I like about the movie. Number one, um, I like Chris Pine as Kirk. Sometimes he says funny things. 84% on Rotten Tomatoes? What? I like Zoe Saldana as Uhura. She's such a cutie. I love her. Uh, Zachary Quinto as Spock, even cuter. He's great. Um, you know what? Even Simon Pegg is pretty cute in this movie. I won't lie. All right, wrap it up. I'm having digestive issues. Khan as Benedict Cumberbatch leaves something to be desired. Not really sure <laughs> why they made him white. Actually, I do know because he's white in Wrath of Khan. Not sure. He's not white. He's white. Not really sure. Okay, uh, wrap it up. Uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, yeah. I'm thinking five bags. Okay, good. So that's my third five bagger uh, of the show so far. Uh, if you want, we do little mini reviews and we'll let you know what we're reviewing next on our Instagram. It is cop podcast. I don't know where you're listening to this, but we're on Apple, Apple podcasts, Spotify, umfm.com. Just look up cult of personality. Uh, next week, Barbarella. After that, we'll do THX 1138 and we'll end with, uh, sci-fi month with, uh, they live. I'd also like to know not only has Lucas tricked me into watching Star Trek again, he has also tricked me into thinking we're doing a sci-fi month, but what he actually did was he picked five movies because this is a very sci-fi pick. So he's actually screwed me over many times. Many times. Too many times. Yeah. Oh wait, yeah. it's May already? Yeah. Oh shit. No way. You know what? Yeah, this is this is start this starts it off. Okay. Um I'm not taking it back cuz I'm still pissed that I had to watch this, but uh <laughs> yeah. Um fuck you. All right. Uh yeah, we'll end it there. All right.
We'll see you guys. Okay, next, stay safe. We'll see you guys next week. We're watching Barbarella. Uh, it's got Jane Fonda. Please stay safe, Jane Fonda. If something happens, if Jane Fonda dies this week, I will. We will. We're not going to cancel the show, but we're going to have um, a religious official on to guide us. I'm going to poop my pants. End the show. And you're going to end the show? No, end the show. I need to. Oh, <laughs> I need to go. You should have. Well, you, the first rule of call, cop is you go before the recording because we know Lucas takes 30 minutes to start and then an hour and a half to record. So, good night, everybody. Yeah. See you next week. <laughs> have a good one. For hate's sake, I stab at thee.